0: Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of Unmasking COVID, a podcast that aims to share personal stories during this time of uncertainty. Today, we are joined by Nick Quinn and Madeline Randallay from FIMRC, or FIMRIC, or known as the Foundation for International Medical Relief of Children, a nonprofit organization focused on providing health care for medically underserved communities worldwide.
1: Nick is currently the field operations manager at Project Baduda in Uganda. He graduated from University of Wisconsin-Madison with a bachelor's in economics and has served as a Peace Corps volunteer in the Western region of Uganda prior to joining FIMRIC. During his times as a Peace Corps volunteer, Nick focused on areas of improved home agriculture practices and nutrition, financial literacy, and empowering youth through business and entrepreneurship. He also enjoys bike touring, backpacking, podcasts, reading, and, and ice cold spot camp.
2: Madeline is the Interim Director of Global Operations at FIMRIC. Prior to working with FIMRIC, she worked as an admissions representative for Alma College, where she enjoyed focusing on helping first-generation and low-income students reach their college goals. Since joining FIMRIC in 2016, she has used her skills to grow FIMRIC's Chaptership Program, Internship Program, and Alumni Program. Madeline has traveled to Rwanda with a program similar to the Global Health Volunteer Program, which is what introduced her to FIMRIC.
3: So I guess to start off, could you tell us a little bit more about FIMRIC and the kind of services you offer?
4: Sure, absolutely. Um, so as you mentioned already, FIMRIC is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Uh, we were founded in 2002 with our first site established in 2004 um, and have since grown to operate in nine different countries around the world with a total of 10 different project sites. Um, Our services that we offer really depend on the community's needs and priorities where we work um, within those 10 different project sites. They really focus on three main aspects, uh, access to clinical care. Um, So at most of our project sites, we provide some sort of clinical services uh, focused on preventative health and primary care. Um, So for example, in Project Bedoodo, which we have um, FOM Nick here with us, um, we see um, approximately or over 300,000 patients a year, um, or 30,000 patients a year, my bad, um, with our outpatient department and maternity ward. Um, the second pillar is education. Um, and so every single project site where we work um, is incorporating different kinds of health education services for the community. And so it really depends on what the community focuses on um, and what their priorities are. But you can see overall themes um, throughout all of our FEMRIC project sites, things like nutrition, maternal and child health, non-communicable diseases like diabetes and hypertension, um, mental health, At times, depending on the site, um, infectious diseases um, and things like that. And so an example of that is um, our diabetes and hypertension clubs where uh, members meet weekly to monitor their glucose and blood pressure levels, as well as build upon their knowledge to manage their, their respective diseases. Um, And then the third pillar is participation, where we uh, really incorporate outreach programs and partnerships with local organizations, health facilities, and different institutions. Um, And so, for example, we partner with a lot of different schools at our project sites um, for different health education purposes and things like our health promoter programs. Um, So those are just some examples of... um, services we offer at different sites um, that are kind of broken down into those three pillars to achieve our overall mission.
3: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, Framework is doing a lot of things to really benefit and uplift our society and the world at large. But could you tell me a little bit more about your individual roles, as in can you elaborate on them?
4: Sure. Um, I, if, Nick, if you don't, I can go first and then and then have you go. Um, so, my role within FIMRIC has really evolved over the four years that I've worked with FIMRIC's headquarters office. Um, I started out working with our chaptership program, alumni, um, interns, um, MPH students, uh, working with our social media. Um, I've started incorporating more and more site support work as well um, throughout my four years because my background is in international development. Um, And so now really in response to COVID-19, we've refocused um, our volunteer program efforts to virtual volunteer programs. Um, And so that's really one of my main focuses now. Um, as well as my role as Interim Director of Global Operations to help oversee um, with our FOMs, or Field Operations Managers, the operations of our FIMRIC project sites.
5: Uh, For my role as the Field Operations Manager at Project Baduta in Uganda, um, I maintain and and oversee operations and logistics uh, around site activities that we have there. So kind of some main areas of focus for myself um, is based around one, volunteer management. So under normal circumstances, we'll have volunteers that will come to our site for varying lengths of time. Maybe it could be a week. It could be several months. So working with headquarters staff to make sure that we're prepared to receive our volunteers um, at our guest house and at our clinic facility, um, as well to making sure that we meet certain Project requirements, if there are any for our volunteers coming in and see how best um, fit they are for some of the activities that are within our clinic or our, our outreach activities. Um, like, like Madeline said, we focus a lot on health education and community outreach. So we have a fantastic site team um, at Invaduta there. Uh, so we work together uh, on health education programs, uh, what needs. Um, can we serve within our communities with our outreaches and education. Um, it might be working with schools and partnerships around immunization, sanitation projects, uh, awareness and HIV uh, focused activities and a variety of other things, uh, as well to the kind of overall project management activities at our clinic. So we have the operations that could be around the budgetary activities, the reporting aspects of things, and planning out for for future activities and events um, and how that all works together on site both with our staff because our clinic um, supports staff of about 30 individuals and then about 50 or so community-based volunteers that we work with. So working to organize with our different um, members of departments and our leadership team to make sure all those operations run smoothly at the clinic.
0: Great. So um, I know, Madeline, like you mentioned that you guys are now moving towards virtual volunteer programs. Um, This is an example, or if you have any other things to address, what do you think is the impact of COVID-19 on your specific site? So I think, so for,
4: from an HQ or headquarters standpoint, um, COVID ha- has had um, an enormous impact on uh, FIMRIC's operations in general as an organization. Um, as Nick mentioned, you know our volunteer program um, is a huge point um, of how FIMRIC operates and 90% of our revenue really comes from our volunteer programs and sustains our operations as a nonprofit organization. Um, and so of course with the, um, quarantine measures in place and, um, the inability to travel, um, that has really hit our volunteer programs, um, and consequently has hit our revenue stream as an organization. And so, um, in terms of the impact, it's, it it really has had a huge impact on what we're able to do. Um, but FIMRIC, um, really as an organization is very nimble. Um, And being a small organization, we are able to do um, act quickly and and think quickly and work together. And so I think that we've had some really great successes at different project sites um, on addressing COVID and being able to continue operations as much as possible. Um, And so I don't know, Nick, do you want to talk a little bit about um, Beduda specifically and how, Um, COVID has impacted Uganda?
5: Absolutely. Um, One of the the bigger impacts for myself is that right now I'm not currently on site. Uh, I'm back in the U.S. uh, in Minnesota with some family right now. So that's a a big change for me, um, being off-site but still being able to provide site support and support the virtual volunteer program that HQ has been fantastic of of pivoting on and and being very successful with. But thankfully, uh, we do have a great site team and we've been able to maintain much of our clinic operations with few adjustments. Um, We've been, of course, emphasizing uh, safe health procedures like distancing and hand washing and PPE at our clinic. Uh, some of the biggest adjustments that we've had to made, make uh, are around the outreach program, because going out into communities into large community settings or community large gatherings um, is not really something that is great to do right now, but we've been able to put more emphasis on health education activities at our clinic, um, and as well, too, we have been able to do uh, maintain some outreach activities in a safe way um, in more distant settings with smaller groups because it's still very important to share knowledge around um, COVID awareness and as well the other uh, health-related topics uh, that are still important to, to keep on our radar in times like this as well.
1: It's definitely great to hear how... Um like adaptable as an organization uh, FIMRIC has been. And I think um, like from the roles that both of you previously mentioned, um, I think it also comes from the fact that like FIMRIC does cover um, like a wide range of aspects when covering global health. um, And it really does widen what global health means. So um, it is really nice that um, as an organization, you've been able to um, kind of adapt to the circumstances.
2: That said, have there been any big or even small challenges that you've had to face in making these adjustments during the pandemic?
4: Absolutely.
2: (laughs) There are certainly a
4: lot of challenges that we've had to face. Um, You know, depending on the specific country, depending on the community that we're working in, the challenges do look different. Um, And so, a lot of our sites. just the simple impact of quarantine has caused us to pause certain operations um, and certain site staff can't actually go out to do their work. Um, For the majority of our clinic sites, they have been able to continue in some way, shape or form providing those clinical services. Um, Like you heard from Nick, Uganda is able to, has been able to continue. um, Our site in Costa Rica has actually been able to continue It's clinical services and psychology services through uh, telehealth um, and telecommunications. Um, Similarly, in Ecuador with our psychology services. Um, And so some of our sites have been able to really adapt. Um, But of course, for some of our other sites that are our partnership sites, where we don't have clinical operations as a focus, um, because there's not that health, we're not seen as a healthcare organization. We're seen as a public health organization. Um, there aren't special permissions given to our staff members. And so they aren't able to go out um, and perform those health education um, programs, which, you know, is is important, but at the same time is understandable because we're not supposed to be gathering in groups and, and things like that. And so um, that certainly has has been a challenge to be able to figure out how we can still maintain a connection with the community and continue our work um, while following the protocol um, implemented within each country.
5: Some of the challenges that we've had more specific to our site in Beduta, and again coming back to some of the personal challenges I've had is that uh, it was a very much a difficult decision to to leave site, um, the clinic, the staff community, and the friends and family that I've made in Uganda uh, over the years that I've been there. Uh, the headquarters team has been fantastic in supporting the decisions of our FOMs because some have decided to stay on site, some had deci- decided to return back to their um, to their homes, so they were great through that process. Um, But it was also very important, both for us, I think, as an organization and in discussing how best we want to um, maintain clinic operations or not during this time, having those good discussions with our site staff, Um, and it was really inspiring to have these kind of discussions with them because um, they really emphasized that they wanted to still be there. They still wanted to, to provide support. To the community, and it was important for, for them and for us as an organization to continue going on supporting the community and our staff as best we can, like letting folks know we're, we're there for them, uh, even through these difficult times. Um, there have been quite stringent restrictions brought down by the Ugandan government uh, during this time that we've had to work around. Um, the... Airports are closed down, the borders are closed down, the public transportation and private transportation have, have been closed down and only are now slowly starting to be reintroduced. So that those transportation issues have been things we've had to work around. Uh, we're in a rural setting, so being able to go to pick up, for instance, like supplies for the clinic or, or medical supplies for our pharmacy Uh, Initially, we're of concern, but we've been able to work with the the district and the local government um, with some support in providing transport for us to be able to move to the nearby town to to get the supplies that we need, uh, which has been great. We've definitely had some um, challenges around cost changes throughout this time as well, too. Uh, Obviously, we've had to... um, make some changes around that transportation, but as well, even looking at the the variations in cost on supplies that we get. For instance, the price of exam gloves had, had gone up by almost four times in pricing. So difficult decisions on, obviously we need gloves. PPE is very important, especially in a time like this and within a clinic setting. So making sure like how can we balance and adjust some of our other budgets elsewhere to make sure that we're able to to continue uh, keeping the, the clinic safe. Um, I think we're definitely victims of our own success in, in this situation and with many of the projects that we do because we are seeing, um, as, as community members see us, continuing to maintain uh, a high quality of, of care and maintaining supplies of items as other facilities are starting to run out and more folks are continuing to come to us, making sure that we continue to to keep a good balance of of supporting the community, and again, coming back to uh, the supply of things as well. Um, And being that we're a border district as well too, um, there's been more caution for all border districts in Uganda um, with some of these restrictions lifting uh, slower because we do have a lot of uh, inter-country travel for folks coming across. So um, again, working around those restrictions of of making sure that it's opened up in a correct way and making sure that those movements um, in and out of our country and in and out of our communities, the, the government has put a lot of emphasis on. So. Making sure that our staff is safe and following the correct government standards are things that we also have been taking very
6: seriously and at times could be a challenge as well.
1: Yeah, um, like you definitely mentioned um, like, thinks about how you have to work with, like, the new COVID restrictions, uh, both at headquarters and at, like, Project Badura. And um, I was wondering, have you uh, run into any problems with both, like, working um, with, with the community organizations and the government while also keeping in mind the community's
7: needs and also, like, the trust that you have built with them over the years?
5: Um, I think since our site, the, uh, our Project Beduda site and the activities that we've been um, maintaining, uh, it's been going on for many years. So we have a lot of trust uh, within the community. The community uh, is used to us um, and used to our volunteers being around. and we, we have a generally a good rapport uh, at the district level. And with the district health officer. So that's been really good with um, I think communication throughout this uh, at the more uh, district level. We also have staff members that are engaged in um, different government activities and within government facilities. So we have members that are actually on like district COVID task task force forces that are in our community. So it's nice to have staff members that are also engaged at that level to keep us informed of the activities that have been going on. Uh, so we can plan and, and work around that. I think maybe some of the, the bigger challenges were just when the first case was reported in Uganda, um, the uh, government overall reacted and acted very quickly to, to kind of close close borders and airports, to restrict or close down a lot of the transportation and a lot of the shops. So I think that there was like a lot of confusion around like, what does this all mean? Um, how long are these restrictions going to be in place? Um, and there was just kind of a lot of confusion about how is this going to work, and a bit of fear. And in seeing some police presence in our area, um, had us questioning like, can we maintain safety of operations and safety of our staff? Uh, thankfully, there there was not. Um, too much issue around that a lot of that had to do with markets that that regularly operate in our area um, attract people from a lot of different areas and people that cross over the border uh, to and from kenya for for supplies or supplying to these markets so they wanted to make sure that those activities didn't continue on but but thankfully um, the communication and the cooperation both within our organization and across different organizations and and entities have been pretty good throughout the entire process.
7: Um, Madeline, do you have anything to add add to that?
4: Um, Yeah, I mean, I think so each of our FOMs and our site staff um, on the ground work very closely with the local um, health facilities, work with the Ministry of Health, and so it's really following their protocol. Um, to be able to best address um, how to work with to continue working with the community as much as possible Um, and so I know that that means different things in different countries. Um, Just as an example, in Costa Rica, while we haven't been able to reopen the clinic, I know I mentioned um, the telehealth appointments, but what we've also been able to do and work out with the Ministry of Health is going to the clinic once a week to be able to distribute medications that have been prescribed through the telehealth appointments. Um, And so trying our best to work within the parameters that are set. which can, can sometimes be very difficult, um, but, but a lot of the times, because we have made those personal relationships, um, we're able to really address um, in
7: creative ways. Makes sense. Um, so it's great hearing about like how
1: your specific sites have been doing uh, with regards to COVID, but I just had a more uh, general question to post to both of you. Um, so like with your experience and like background in working with global health and public health, um, I was just wondering what challenges do you think in general come with tackling COVID in low resource settings? Um, like I mean, with regards to like social distancing measures
7: and other, and other things like that.
4: Um, Great question. So um, I think that um, oftentimes the problems that we see here in in the U.S. or in Western countries are or can be exacerbated in low resource settings. Um, You know, there's currently ongoing the debate between um, economic failure and then health failure and, and, you know, weighing the risk of reopening economies um, to the risk of increasing the transmission of the virus Um, and so a lot of times in low resource settings that is also a very real conversation that has to be had Um, and a lot of times families have much less of a safety net um, financially to be able to rely on Things like, I think of dissemination of information can be really difficult um, in very rural, low resource settings um, because not everybody necessarily has access to the internet. Um, And also the information that people do get um, can vary greatly depending on what the government is telling the population within the the country. Um, And so that can change um, how people address uh, the virus and and how easy it is to tackle it um, on the other side of pieces of the of the puzzle is um, governments in more authoritative roles um, we've seen a lot of um, of a military presence in a lot of the countries where we work um, and so citizens are only allowed to exit their homes on certain days of the week uh, and they're only allowed to go outside for Food, so going to a grocery store, uh, to go to a bank, or to go to a health facility, basically a hospital. Um, And so having that much restriction um, on people's ability to move and people's ability to um, just be outside, um, because I know at least here in the US, people have still been allowed to go outside and things like that. And that's really, really helpful in terms of maintaining. you know, good mental health um, during a pandemic and so that can have a huge impact on how countries tackle COVID and how people react to, to the measures. Um, Nick, did you have anything else?
5: Yeah, thank you. I think you touched on a lot of great things here. Uh, maybe in a couple areas that I'd like to add to is that we're, we would also see many of uh, the same things that you might see in in higher resource settings. Um, Lack of testing or lack of access to testing. Um, Not just talking about Uganda, but I think many countries within Africa where you've seen uh, the spread of COVID being a bit more delayed than other areas of the world. Um, There's been a lot of emphasis on testing for folks returning to country when they still could, or maybe the Um, limited populations that might still be able to cross borders like people transferring cargo and things. So a lot of emphasis put in those areas. But then what does that mean for uh, people that are in country, have been in country that may have even less access to to testing? Um, I think as well to supply limitations um, and uncertainty around supply uh, within some low resource countries that receive um, a lot of things from outside their country. They're not producing a lot of things or manufacturing a lot of things. Um, They're really um, subject to the supply of things like medicine or PPE or medical equipment. Um, While some industry might be able to pivot within country to, to be able to produce some of this, it can be really limited and they might just be, uh, subject to whatever they can still get coming in. Another area might be on uh, uneven supply dis- distribution within the country itself. Whether it's those materials, like I just said, or if there's government initiatives, like we have seen in some countries around like food distribution, um, there can be some uneven amount of distribution into um, more prosperous areas or larger cities, and sometimes the trickling down into less populated or poorer areas of the country, that might come slower or not
6: at all, which can definitely be a challenge.
7: Um, Yeah, I guess
3: you both touched on the fact that this pandemic has affected countries very differently. So my question is, have you seen a difference in the way COVID has affected individuals um, and specifically families in varying places around the world?
4: Yeah, I think, um, I think it certainly affects people differently no matter where you live. Um, and so it can be across countries. It can be within the same country, even the same community. It can affect people the people living in the same community differently, right? Um, I think social determinants of health are a huge part of how it impacts families where you are born, live, work, grow, and play. Um, but it also has a huge impact on uh, an individual's mental health. Um, and, and so that is a very individual and personal piece of how it can affect you. Um, and so I touched on this before, but when um, you're in a pandemic and, you know, the main recommendation is to isolate as much as possible and to quarantine, um, we really, as humans, are interconnected. And so it becomes very difficult uh, mentally when you aren't able to have those normal interactions with others. Um, and so that's, so that's a way that it can affect every individual uh, differently, no matter where you're living in the world.
5: Yeah, you've made some great points there, Madeline. Um, I think maybe just to add a little bit there as well, too, is that thinking about one of the biggest challenges right now is um, around the question or answering the question of when might this end or when might we return to some kind of feeling of normal and no one can really say Um, because some folks, again, might be more impacted or or less impacted than others, but those safety nets that they might have, whether it's financially or, or with job positions, um, are larger or smaller or non existent. So, as things continue to, to move along as they have been and are continuing to, and this could be stretching on for, for a longer period of time, I think you'll see some of these disparities grow uh, even larger and and looking for ways to address them will be some of the near-term uh, big issues that need to be solved.
1: Yeah, uh, like you mentioned, um, like things like social support uh, that is offered to communities is very important in uh, kind of the impact the pandemic has. Um, I was kind of just uh, wondering, um, so, like in Bedouin and also like other framework project size, um, like how has social support from
7: the government been like, um, as as compared to um, like North America?
5: From from a uh, support from like a government perspective, um, we have seen, uh, like I said before, some uh, government interventions mostly around like food support. Um, different from what we've seen in the U.S. with some level of like stimulus support or, or unemployment support that's less seen uh, in places like Uganda. Um, so, so those food rations, uh, certain, certain amounts depending on um, if you're able to work or not, uh, food rations have been going out into different areas. Um, as well, another thing that the president talked about a few weeks ago was that the government would be issuing uh, cloth masks to every resident uh, within the country six years of age or older? So they've been working t- uh, on manufacturing and getting supplies of those. And I think they're just now starting that distribution process to everyone throughout the country. But we're, again, we're hoping that it's um, moving along as quickly as possible and making sure that it gets to. To every uh, member that it's supposed to get to, but those are kind of some of the bigger government uh, initiatives that we've seen in the area. Otherwise, it's mostly been, um, you know, pretty well locked down. Um, Uganda's a very agriculture-focused country, so so a lot of the uh, communication has been around. Okay, if you're not able to work, you're still able to supply food to your household or within your community because under the assumption that most everyone farms or gardens in some way, um, which is true, but can be uh, for some folks a strong assumption that uh, they might not be able to access um, enough food or enough variety of food to make that really a possibility for them.
4: I think Nick pretty well covered what <laughs> project video then you is looking at for social services. Um, I think when you're looking at low resource settings in general, social services are really hard um, to provide to the entire public. And so, um, you know, it's just a, it's a really, really hard spot to be in when you're struggling um, in so many different aspects and um, to be able to, to provide those. So I think a lot of our, countries that we work in um, are facing similar pieces um, to Uganda.
7: Um, yeah, I guess you guys both mentioned how, it's,
3: how this pandemic has really changed how um, services are provided. So looking into the future, how can we prepare for medical emergencies like this pandemic, or what can we learn from this pandemic that might help us better prepare ourselves in the future?
4: Um, I think that's a great question. Um, I would hope uh, from this pandemic uh, we've learned the importance of investing in public health initiatives. on multiple scales, um, both national, regional, and global. Um, I think that a couple main points that we um, can learn are that we need increased communication um, and coordination in terms of a global response um, when things like this start to evolve. Um, And I think another huge piece is um, like Nick talked about the mobilization and distribution of resources, and looking at that supply chain and and how that operates and how to improve that. So I think that those are two big pieces that would be that I would hope we would learn um, lessons from this pandemic.
5: Yeah, definitely areas of of preparedness and and being able to yeah like like Madeline said the communication, but also then. Uh, the action um, and and taking proper action uh, more uh, immediately. Um, you're seeing that with with some countries around the world that that took very what seemed at the time very drastic measures uh, and very quick measures. You're seeing uh, now the successes that that are coming out of those countries. I think I saw the other day that New Zealand has has cleared, I think, their last case, which I know that they took things very seriously there. So I hope that that, that can be a model uh, for other countries and just countries in general. I think that um, taking it more seriously and reacting a bit more quickly can really lessen some of these um, issues and problems that we're
6: seeing later down the line.
0: Yeah, so all things that we need to definitely consider for preparing for medical emergencies like this in the future. And now, I guess for currently, we can talk more about the field of public health. We see that now uh, public health is often underfunded and the research is limited. Could you tell us a bit about what public health entails and where do you see the field progressing after this pandemic?
4: Yes, so uh, public health in general uh, is the overall health of a population. Um, Normally looking at, you know, specific region or country or community, um, it combines efforts uh, to promote health, protect and control health risk factors, and prevent diseases um, on that larger scale. Um, And so when you're thinking about um, where we see this field progressing, Um, I mean, again, the hope is really that, um, more of an investment is made in public health in seeing all of the pieces that are incorporated into, into public health and not just the medical piece, um. There are so many factors, um, including things like social determinants of health um, that impact the health of the population. And and so being able to invest in all of those pieces is really important in terms of improving health on a community, all the way from an individual community scale to a global scale. Um, And so hopefully from this pandemic, we'll see the field progress in terms of um, financial investment, in terms of resource investment, to improve our ability to to really address um, those issues.
5: Yes, Madeline definitely uh, made some great points there, and I think gave some great definition around the the large topic that can be uh, public health and global health, because it does not only touch on areas of of health-related issues, but also thinking about that social side, the political and economic side, and really how there can be equity made within a community, within a country, and across the world in areas there too. So thinking ahead of, of what we can do next or what we might see coming out of this in the future. Um, I think there'll be a lot of emphasis um, in areas of like recovery, research, and, and prevention and mitigation activities and how to balance that overall because for many places, this will take a long time to recover and that recovery will look very different depending on where you are or where your activities will be. So I think there'll be a lot of emphasis on recovery uh, activities, and then to in areas of research. I mean, we're seeing that right now with with vaccines and improved uh, testing and a wider range of, of testing capabilities and that infrastructure being there to, to pivot more quickly to address situations like this. Um, looking at the prevention on how to avoid situations like this altogether, um, and and if we can't avoid something, uh, what action sets can we take to mitigate them from reaching the levels that they've gotten to today? Um, also to thinking about how to balance like this is not the only thing that's happening in the world right now. Uh, there's still, Many other things, and health issues, and political issues, and social and, and economic issues that are happening. So, how how does this get balanced? How does this get balanced in the world and communities that providing good attention to to a situation that we're seeing right now, but also with supporting uh, initiatives like around HIV prevention, um, malaria, infrastructure, sanitation all those areas that are still actively in need of support.
1: Yeah, like you mentioned, um, like public health, is definitely it seems like the intersection of uh, a variety of disciplines um, and does involve a lot of communication and traction between the disciplines. And like you mentioned, something that uh, we should learn from the pandemic is being able to have that like, communication, to be able to um, act faster in um, like curbing something like the pandemic, not just the health effects, but other like socio-political effects as well. Um, I, I, guess just, um, I was just wondering, so like, Based on what you know from um, the current pandemic measures that uh, governments and countries have taken, uh, have you seen a, like any uh, country like focusing on a public health viewpoint
7: or taking a perspective um, towards handling this pandemic?
4: So I think every country has taken somewhat of a public health approach or has tried to take Um, somewhat of a public health approach um, in being able to address the pandemic. Um, You know, it's things like implementing the quarantine. Um, There's things like um, implementing quarantine in different ways. So, um, for example, Peru had at one point tried um, a quarantine measure where genders were um, allowed or different, depending on how you identified, but, um, males were allowed out on one day, women were allowed, females were allowed out on another day, um, to try to be able to better track who was going, um, in terms of tracing back the virus, um, which is an important part of, um, epidemiology and public health as well. Um, that certainly didn't, turn out the way that they expected. And so that that measure was only implemented for a few days. But um, I think that countries have tried to respond um, from somewhat of a public health perspective, um, but it just is the lack in preparedness um, in the systems um, that have prevented people from and countries from being really effective
7: in public health measures.
5: Yes, and as well too, there there are certain areas in certain countries that have been dealing with with similar situations at different times as well too. So um, Uganda's neighbors to the west, uh, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, they've they've had to deal with um, over the years different levels of Ebola outbreaks as well too. So they've they've had some preparedness plans. Uh, both within country and uh, internationally, as well, too, working with different partners on how to, when something like that comes up, how to, how to address it, how to mitigate, how to isolate. Um, and so, there's some countries that have been able to leverage existing practices and apply them in situations like this. But as as Madeline was saying, um, a lot of people and a lot of countries are learning along the way, or a lot of places that haven't. Uh, had to experience anything like that, so in moving forward, um, I'm hopeful that that things will will change in that respect and and greater levels of preparedness will be taken to address possible situations like this in the future.
7: Uh, great, thank you so much for those insights. Um,
1: I think just before we end off this podcast, um so for those uh, For listeners who are interested in learning more about public health and who are interested in getting involved with uh, FIMRIC. um, How can people get involved with your organization right now?
4: Uh, Great question. Um, So right now, as we mentioned, uh, we primarily have virtual volunteer programs that are running. And so if um, people are interested in learning about public health, global health, and how FIMRIC operates within those fields um, around the world. Uh, I certainly would recommend uh, looking at the different program options um, at our website and um, being able to um, being able to sign up for one of those programs is going to be able um, to have that much of an impact. Um, And so that's, that's kind of the main piece. Um, If um, you're interested in just learning more about FIMRIC, uh, our website is uh, www.fimrc.org. And so um, that's really where I would mention to get started. Um, And then from there, we're able to work with you and figure out what you're really passionate about and how that can positively impact FIMRIC's operations around the world.
1: Great, thank you. Uh, And we will also um, link the website on our uh, episode bio for people if anyone's
2: interested in looking that up. For now that concludes our episode of Unmasking COVID. A very special thank you to Nick and Madeline for joining us today and giving us insight into who FIMRIC are and what they're doing in light of COVID-19. Another thank you to our listeners for tuning in and for anyone wanting to join us on our show, you can fill out the Google form on our Facebook page. See you next time.